listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. It's hard to tell. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode 13, Ohio versus Gold. Today we're going to be talking about the gold rush. California in the 1840s and 50s. We're going to be talking about Ohio's most famous treasure hunter, Tommy Thompson, and how Tommy found a mile and a half down on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean what's called the Ship of Gold, the SS Central America, America's biggest treasure trove when it sunk before the Civil War, bringing gold from the California gold fields to the New York banks in 1857. We'll talk about that fateful finding by Tommy Thompson and his crew in 1988. And we'll talk about that fateful journey, the sinking of the SS Central America, as it tried to bring gold to the eastern United States to save our crippled economy. And how 131 years later, Tommy Thompson and his company, the Columbus America Discovery Group, and when they bring that gold back to land, how it starts a chain of events that ends and Tommy still to this day being incarcerated in Delaware County, Ohio. We'll talk about the gold Tommy found on the floor of the ocean. We'll talk about the gold rush and how it changed America, how it changed the Western United States, and how it changed Tommy's life. Gold is that rare thing that people will do anything for. They'll lie for, they'll cheat for, they'll, they'll even kill for. The story of Tommy Thompson and the gold of the US of the SS Central America is the kind of stuff that could be in a movie. Our guest today, Kathy Gray, has, has thought about writing a book about this entire episode. She covered it for the Columbus Dispatch for, for a number of years. She worked at the dispatch since nineteen eighty until her recent retirement. The story of this gold still goes on today. Just last week I went down to the US Federal Courthouse in downtown Columbus to see a hearing of Tommy Thompson and his lawyers arguing about why Mr. Thompson should be let out of the Delaware County Jail. We'll talk with our guest, Kathy Gray, about how Tommy Thompson got there. Tommy is the epitome of what Puff Daddy always said, mo money, mo problems, from the world's most famous treasure hunter to an inmate at an Ohio jail. We want to quickly remind our listeners, uh, this show is also partnered with a nonprofit. The nonprofit raises money for high school seniors um, who do an audio or video essay contest about Ohio history. We give money to those students as they enter college. Um, the nonprofit will be the name beneficiary for Nightlight 614, uh, which is a downtown movie series here in Columbus. They will be playing The Sandlot on August 24th. We'll be there serving beer. Uh, Land Grant Brewing will be in town. Um, all kinds of food trucks. A great fun movie. Again, that's August 24th. Movie starts at sundown. The party starts around 6.30 or 7. Uh, and get there early because they almost always sell out. You can buy your tickets now at nightlight614.com. 
And again, we're still looking for one or two volunteers. Um, if anyone wants to volunteer, you'll get a free Ohio V the World t-shirt. Uh, thanks to Mysterioso Rock Art. But if you want to pour beer with us on, again, Thursday, August 24th, shoot us an email, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Um, let me know you, you're down to volunteer. Let me know your shirt size. We'll see you there. They give you free tickets to future uh, nightlight events, uh, and it'll be a really fun night. So, again, it's the Sandlot, August 24th. Get your tickets at nightlight614.com and email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com if you want to volunteer. Our beer for the episode today is Payback Pilsner. It's from our friend Dan Cochran, who runs Four String Brewing Company here in actually in Grandview, here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Grandview, where the show is located. My wife and I, Miss Ohio V the World, just bought a house here in Grandview this week. Uh, and we are drinking their Payback Pilsner. Uh, it's a kind of a golden, uh, a golden German lager. And we drink a lot of Four String. Again, it's one of the, the big beers down here in Columbus. Uh, they also have a great new lager, an American lager called Hilltop. Uh, only comes in tall boy cans. It's a really, really solid drink. Um, but the Payback Pilsner, because we're going to be talking about all the people Tommy Thompson is supposed to be paying back. Payback is why he's still in jail today. Um, and again, you can go to fourstringbrewing.com. Check out their tap room in Grandview. It's on uh, West 6th Avenue. Or West 6th, yeah, West 6th Avenue. Um they have a ton of great beers. I got the Brass Knuckle Pale Ale. Um, but we chose this one because we're going to be talking about Ohio versus gold today. So check out the pay Payback Pilsner. Uh, it's another one of their many great beers at Four String Brewing Company. Without further ado, we're going to get going. We're going to go back to the gold rush of 1848, 1849 in California. We'll spend some time on the high seas off the coast of Carolina where the ship the SS Central America will go down. And we'll spend some time right here in Ohio talking about Tommy Thompson from Defiance, Ohio, Ohio State graduate who lived uh, right next to me, really, in Victorian Village, um, an old Neal Avenue resident where he concocted this entire scheme to find the gold on the floor of the ocean. So sit back, grab yourself a four-string beer, and get ready to hear one of the craziest stories ever told. It's episode 13, Ohio versus Gold. The California Gold Rush started on January 24th, 1848, when a carpenter working for a, a settler, a pioneer named John Sutter, was working on a mill. While surveying the area, John Marshall looked down in a creek along the American River near Sacramento today, east of Sacramento, at the base of Sierra Nevada Mountains, saw something shiny in the water, and he reached down and found a piece of gold. He found a number of pieces of gold, and he brought those back to his boss, and they just couldn't keep quiet about it. If they could have kept quiet about it, then maybe John Marshall or James Marshall and, and Sutter could have been millionaires. Instead, neither of them will really become rich from the gold rush, but it started right there in January 1848. About a week and a half later, the United States and Mexico locked in a two-year war, the Mexican-American War, signed a treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, ending the war 
the United States having captured even Mexico City, crushing the once mighty Mexican Empire, and in the process being awarded California. The California Territory, in, in two years' time, would become a state. It would only be rushed into statehood based on those findings along the, the American River near Sacramento. Sutter and Marshall can't keep a secret, and people began flooding out to California from the East, from the Middle West, from Latin America, South America, from Asia, Europe. By boat and by, by land, they make their way to the, what would become the Golden State. In December of later that year of 1848, President Polk would announce that gold had been found in December of 48, and by that time, the gold rush was on. 300,000 people make their way to California. They become known as the 49ers because of the year 1849. It's the name of their football team now, the San Francisco 49ers. Comes from this influx of not just Americans, but people from across the globe, all seeking their own fortunes in the gold fields of California. As these hundreds of thousands of 49ers make their way to California, one of the great American cities is born. It was known during the years of Mexican occupation as Yorba Buena becomes known San Francisco and the 200 people that lived there on the coast near the bay in 1846 we had 200 people in San Francisco by 1852 just six years later that number has grown to 36,000 a city a mega city by 1850 standards crops up overnight and at the same time California is admitted into the union the Americans don't want to let such a great opportunity of a, of a promised land go to waste. And at that point, the American empire extends all the way to the Pacific. A great book about these crazy formative years of the gold rush. Um, I read a book, a, a wonderful book I'd recommend called The Age of Gold by H.W. Brands, a famous American historian. But people come from all walks of life. It's an incredibly hard life just getting there is incredibly difficult. Goods and the inflation of prices goes through the roof. It's a very expensive place to live in San Francisco. Fortunes were made just in owning a general store in California. But all this gold didn't stay in California. A lot of people, like I said, came from the East Coast. Places like New York and Boston. And with the railroads not being built in the 1850s, it would almost always arrive by sea on ships like the SS Central America, a ship that was christened in 1853. The gold and its passengers would, would load up in San Francisco. They'd go either around South America, sometimes even land in, in a place like Panama and be wagoned across the, you know, a, a small stretch of land. And you would ride your boat from Panama to Cuba and then up the eastern seaboard. This is a trip the SS Central America and its captain, William Herndon, made a number of times. But no time was it more packed than when it left Panama in the late summer of 1857. Loaded with passenger gold, loaded with gold from the U.S. Army, loaded with gold from the San Francisco Mint that was government money being sent back to the banks in New York. The SS Central America sets sail for Havana and then to New York in that summer, August of 1857.
Tommy Thompson was born in 1952. He grew up in a place called Defiance, Ohio, Northwest Ohio. Tommy was an exceptionally bright kid. Grew up watching fellow Ohioans like John Glenn and Neil Armstrong go to space. Things that he he loved science and math. And again, incredibly smart kid. I mean, when he's, you know, 10 or 11, uh, his parents get a knock on the door and it's a, it's a worker from the phone company, Ohio Bell, it used to be called. Um, back in the day, if anyone's old enough to remember that. And the Ohio Bell worker asks his mom and says, you know, you can't, you're stealing a phone line. We're going to have to charge you for that. Um, and she says, you know, we only have one phone line. This is, you know, the 19, early 1960s. He didn't have two lines back then. And he says, ma'am, I can see a wire, another second wire coming from the house. And she, he goes outside and he shows her and they see that it's going upstairs. And they go up and they see that the wire leads into Tommy's bedroom. Tommy had made a phone out of an alarm clock and tapped in to the to the phone wires outside so that he could listen in on his older sister's calls. He was an evil genius even back then. Um, they disconnected it and Tommy got in trouble. But his parents could obviously see his promise and his teachers the same thing. Tommy ends up going to Columbus to Ohio State University to study engineering in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And Tommy, again, incredibly brilliant. Um, always off in his own little world, doing his own little thing. But he graduates from Ohio State, and he was always interested in, in, in gold and, and shipwrecks. And, and Tommy you know, decides to go down to Key West. A friend of his was down there. And he actually ends up you know, working for a couple of treasure hunters. He goes on a couple of different voyages, uh, living in South Florida, living in the Keys. Uh, nothing major, but he learns about the ocean. He learns about sailing. And he learns about how to find these wrecks. But people in the 70s, these two-bit treasure hunters Tommy was working with, they're looking for ships that have wrecked in, in shallow water. There's no way to go look for deep ocean wrecks and things like the Titanic um, because there's just no way to find them. Even if you knew almost exactly where you thought the ships went down, you could still never get down there to get them, let alone locate them. Tommy decides to move back to Columbus, and Tommy takes a job at a place called Battelle, a very secretive research um, nonprofit here in Columbus, actually just outside of Grandview, kind of in between Ohio State and Grandview, uh, on King Avenue, right on the Olentangy River. Tommy begins working in their basically their marine section. Battelle is a is a place, you know, where incredible discoveries are made. Uh, they invented the Xerox machine, the copy machine invented at Battelle through their research in the 1940s. They invented cruise control for cars in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, they pioneered how you can store data on compact discs, bringing in, you know, the age of CDs in the 1990s. Also, they're probably most famous for one of the most important firms working on the Manhattan Project, the development of the atomic bomb dropped on Japan in 1945 that led us into the atomic age, the nuclear age, and ultimately ended World War II. We asked our guest, Kathy Gray, just about Battelle, about Tommy's work there, um, and how it led him to his next step of deep ocean discovery. 
So Tommy Thompson um, was a Battelle scientist, and uh, Battelle is this large uh, research uh, nonprofit that's in Columbus. It's kind of a um, secretive place, isn't it? It's secretive because of the things that they do research on. Right. And um, so this was kind of a perfect place for Tommy, who was eventually a pretty secretive kind of a guy. Um, and so he was, a, he was a Battelle scientist, but back when he was at Ohio State studying to be an engineer, he became very interested in um, shipwrecks. And when he was working for Battelle, he began to work um, on marine projects, uh, marine research projects. And one of the things that he did was he um, wanted himself to be able to he, he, he thought that the ship had, had gone down and was in very deep water. So he knew that he would need some way to retrieve um, things from the ship. Right, even if he did find it, he, yeah. there's, there's no technology at the time to even get the, the gold. Right, and so, so remember, this is the 1980s when, you know, computers were, um, you know, just kind of in, they were, they were somewhat fledgling. And so the, they didn't have the technology really um, to find a ship and then to go down and retrieve anything from the ship if it was in really, really deep water. Well over a hundred years before Tommy Thompson took that job at Battelle, the ship, the SS Central America, a sidewheel steamer, runs on coal, a wooden ship, begins to set sail from Panama, making its way from Panama to Havana to New York City Harbor. Captain William Herndon, the, the man that the city Herndon, Virginia, outside of D.C. is named for, his daughter would actually go on to marry our 21st president, Chester A. Arthur. Herndon and his crew set sail with almost 575 passengers on board. That's passengers and crew. All of these passengers were from California. They all had their fortunes, whether in their luggage or cataloged in the ship's safes. All of them were leaving from San Francisco, were now making their way back east. Also, a ton of gold for the U.S. Army, a ton of gold for the, from the Mint in San Francisco, heading for the banks of New York. The United States was in the early crunch of something that would become known as the Panic of 1857. Banks were failing. Money was needed to keep a lot of these banks and financial institutions afloat. As they set sail, they stop in Havana, and when they leave Havana, they make their way up the eastern seaboard. In September of 1857, as they get into the Atlantic Ocean, they run smack into a hurricane. With winds over 110 miles an hour, the ship is rocked, its sails are wrecked, they spring a leak. They begin taking on water. Passengers don't know how bad it is. On September 9th, uh, they become aware that the ship is in trouble and that the water is threatening to enter into the coal room and extinguish those coal fires and basically strand them. The weather on top, again, at right smack dab in the middle of a hurricane. The passengers begin you know, a bucket brigade. They try and bail the water out. And everyone's working together. But it becomes clear, as Captain Herndon sends out any Mayday distress telegrams he can, telegraphs, that the ship isn't going to make it. And on September 10th, those coal fires are extinguished. 
The water crests over the coals, and the ship is now stranded, just floating aimlessly, being tossed from wave to wave. The SS Central America is in big trouble. Some ships do their best to reach them. They begin lowering women and children into the life rafts. We ask Kathy Gray about the fate of the SS Central America. It's sinking, it's passengers on board, 423 of which will perish. So there were all these people on board who had gold dust and gold pieces, gold bars, that sort of thing, um, you know, that, that they were, had made their fortune in this way. There were also, there also was on board um, a great deal of money from the San Francisco Mint. And these were gold bars from the San Francisco Mint um, and I believe coins also. And so those were being also taken to New York. Um, so you had this ship that had, um, I think I think the estimate was $1.7 million worth of gold, and that was just the official um, from the mint sort of gold uh, that was on this ship. And so when it sunk in this, in this huge hurricane, and um, not only were people interested in it because over 400 people died um, when it sunk. Now, there were some people that escaped and were able to get on another boat. There were like about 100, oh, about 150 maybe that escaped. Um, but so when it sunk, you know, not only did all these people die and the crew died, but all this gold went to the bottom of the um, ocean. And one of the other stories that, that is told about this is that <laughs> the captain ordered everyone to, uh, you know, and, and so here these people are bringing their fortunes back, and they're heavy, of course, and he told everyone that the, the most that they could take with them was a, 20, um, a $20 gold coin each. Hmm. Um, but reportedly, some people didn't pay any attention to that, and when they, you know, when this, the, the ship actually sunk, they had so much gold on their bodies that they sunk also. Wow. So that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't be saved. ship goes down. Captain Herndon and the crew, the men aboard, and more importantly even for our story, the fortune, the ship of gold has sunk in the Atlantic Ocean. As some of the survivors make it back to land, a hundred or so women and children almost exclusively that make it, the heroics of Captain Herndon are told. That's why that city Herndon, Virginia is named for him. On September 11th, 1857, the ship sinks. The money, when that news hits, when those survivors tell their story to the media, and the news hits in New York City that the gold that was being relied upon by the banks and the brokerage firms will not be making it. The government can no longer hold back. The country enters what's called the Panic of 1857. There was enough gold on this ship that without it, the country fell into a depression. That's got to be one of the things that interested Tommy in this shipwreck. That its contents, its cargo, could hold that much gold. That could make that big a difference uh, three years before the Civil War. It sent the country and its financial markets into a spiral under President Buchanan. 
a spiral that it really did not recover from um, until the war, until production in the North anyways, um, brought the economy back on board. We talked to, to Kathy Gray about the Panic of 1857. Was it really caused or at least you know sparked um, by the sinking of Captain Herndon in the SS Central America? But yes, it did, and and that really contributed to it. That's my and my understanding is too that one of the reasons that, that so there's another part of this gold, how much gold there was. Um, reportedly, there were um, 15 tons of gold that the army was shipping to New York. Now, whether that's true or not, it's it's never been proven one way or the other. But that is one of the things that Tommy believed at that time. And um, the, the feeling is that the government did not want to admit that that gold had been on the ship because they were afraid that that would make the panic of 1950 or 1857 even worse. Mm-hmm. So um, that was ne- never verified one way or the other. But just the fact that so much gold went down that was supposed to go and be shipped to the New York banks from the mint, um, that did help cause this this money panic. There seems um, like if you if you look at American history, there's one of these panics like every 10 or 15 mm-hmm. years, you know. There's the panic of 1837, 1857, uh, you know, 1893. But this one's, you know, I guess the, obviously it's not the single cause of it, like you said, but once this ship goes down and New York realizes that it's not going to have the money in its coffers, it really did escalate things very quickly. Mm-hmm. Tommy Thompson in the early 1980s, still working at Patel, is living in the short north, Victorian Village, just north of downtown Columbus. Uh, kind of the area hotspot now for nightlife and restaurants. Um, it was a little more ghetto back in the day. It was, uh, he lived on Neal and 2nd Avenue. I, I used to live on close to Neal and 1st. Um, but Tommy's living and he's become obsessed with the idea of a certain shipwreck. The ship he's become familiar with, probably from his years down in Florida, a ship, the SS Central America. No one knows where it went down. There were articles written, there were witnesses, um, but the the fog of the storm and the other ships that came to pick people up, they didn't have an exact location. Um, you know, the ship, again, even when those ships did come by to pick some of the people up, they drifted away. They have no idea where it went down. No one does. It went down in the middle of a hurricane. Tommy becomes obsessed, him and his friends like Robert Evans, Bob Evans, not that Bob Evans, but they become obsessed with finding this ship. And they begin working on on narrowing the search field, looking at old newspaper, breaking out the old microfish, microfilm, all my, all my Generation X and late millennials. Uh, you guys remember doing research by microfish back in the day. They're cobbling together all of this information to develop the best search area that they can find. It's a side hobby that Tommy stays up you know, sometimes all night before he goes back into the office at Patel. He goes and he meets with people, people who work with the Navy to talk about, you know, the Navy's had a few, more than a few, I think probably somewhere of eight or nine different nuclear subs that have sunk. 
They've sunk in somewhat shallow water in the oceans. They've sunk in deep water in the oceans. Obviously, this was a huge deal. None of us knew about it when it happened. But, you know, in, in the 1960s, it happened a couple of times, and one guy had been the coordinator of the group trying to find those ships so they can either salvage them, destroy them, whatever needs to be done. I mean, these things were carrying nuclear warheads on them. Um, Tommy talks with people like that, and they tell him, look, it's just it can't quite be done, especially a place where you don't know where it is. So um, they knew basically from press accounts of the time and from information from the survivors, um, some information about where it might be. So he set about figuring out ways that he could map the floor of the ocean in the area where they thought that it was and um, ways, you know, that they would be able to actually find the shipwreck. Now, he's kind of a pioneer in this. I mean, I'm sure other, you know, the government and other people are doing similar things, but he is certainly at the forefront of this technology, whether it's mapping the ocean floor, um, deep ocean research and, deep, you know, and basically setting down robots you know through computers down the bottom I mean, no one else is really doing this practically you know in, in uh, you know in the Atlantic Ocean at this point and that's one of the reasons why people really thought that he was a genius so he's working on two angles not only to find it but also what do you do when you find it what happens if you find the ship of gold so Tommy needs to develop not only you know modern day sonar on 1980s computers but he also needs to develop a machine that can go down and withstand the pressure of deep ocean discovery and pick that stuff out and in order to do that he needs to find investors and where do you go when you need money you go to the people who have the money tommy thompson begins working the columbus business legal medical community for thousands and ultimately millions of dollars for his research to develop these types of equipment, to rent ships, to go out and try it, to get computers. All of this to chase his dream of finding the SS Central America, the ship of gold. We talked to Kathy about how does someone get money for a zany, you know, harebrained scheme like this? So, hey, we're going to go to the bottom of the ocean, a mile and a half, two miles down, we're going to pluck a bunch of gold bars out of the Atlantic. No, we don't know where the ship is. I mean, how did he get this money? And he ultimately would raise tens of millions of dollars. This first round, the first discovery, I think he raised $12.7 million from leading business people here in Columbus. We asked Kathy, how the hell did he do it? Yeah. Um, and, and so he became so uh, convinced that he could find this shipwreck that he um, became friends with a number of very wealthy people in Columbus, and he began to convince them that he would be able to find this ship and that they should invest in his endeavor to find it. Yeah, let's talk, let's talk about that. I mean, you've met and spoke with a number of these investors. A lot of them are still alive. A lot of them are still prominent business people and lawyers and accountants and doctors here in central Ohio now. Um, how is he able to sell this idea to them? You know, he's got technology that's not proven. He's got a ship that he's never been able to find. And He's very young. How is he, just talk about, you know, the ways in the 80s and the mid-80s when he's raising money here in Columbus. I mean, how is he getting all these people who I consider to be smart business people to sign on to 
but really is a pipe dream as far as I'm concerned. Well, part uh, of the way that he did it was that he built his um, investors um, by first convincing a few, and then those investors convinced their friends and their business partners or um, other members of their family. He would give presentations. Tommy was, um, um, from everything I've heard, an extremely good speaker, and he was just somebody that people believed. People wanted to follow him. And plus, you've got this whole idea of this gold. Flush with cash, Tommy takes to the high seas. His Columbus America Discovery Group, as the company was known, begins charting the areas. All these people that he had hired and his friends who had given them probability areas of where the ship would be based on the wind and the reports and the, the news stories, everything, the, the survivors. They had narrowed it down to still a giant area of the ocean off the Carolinas coast. I don't say North Carolina or South Carolina because their areas span both. And using this money, he outfits a ship with basically a giant sonar thing. They, they send it over the edge, and they begin charting the bottom of the ocean. This is pioneering stuff. No one had really done this. The government may have done it in a few instances, but Tommy is a pioneer. He is, I think, a, a true genius when it comes to, to deep ocean stuff. He's, he's one of the earliest. And they, they chart in 1986. They go out, they chart this area, and they come up with some, some interesting readings. And they go back to their Victorian village, um, to the Victorian village home over the winter. They try and raise more money, and they go out in 1987. They take to the high seas. They think they've found one or two places where the Central America could be. And now they have the money, the men, and the ship, and the equipment to go find the gold. summer of 1988, Tommy and his men take off um, from Norfolk, Virginia, and from Wilmington, North Carolina, and they go to those high probability areas, to places where the few places where the sonar looks like it could be a sunken ship. They build a machine, the Nemo, we talked to Kathy about, and they begin looking, and they just, it's a probability map, and so they chart the entire area, they'll go, they'll go in a straight line, or as straight as they can go for 30 minutes, they'll turn around just like you're mowing a lawn. And after several months and obviously millions of dollars, they think they've found it. They found a side wheel ship. It's crashed. They send down the Nemo, the camera, and they see a side wheel. And this is in 1987. They thought they found it. They start bringing up some parts of the ship. They bring up the bell, uh, but they don't find any gold. And as the weather becomes too rocky, as the fall of 1987 comes in, they come back to land. And they go back to work in Columbus, and they go back to raising money, and they show them all these artifacts they found off the ship, and they're like, we think we found it. We found the Central America. We need more money. And they get that money. They had another round of, of investors donating, and they go back out in 1988. They develop new systems. That whole winter, though, Bob Evans and Tommy Thompson, they're working in their Victorian village, uh, a house there on Neal Avenue. They found another area that they think another piece of sonar from you know all that 
data they collected on the ocean floor. And they decided to try their new equipment. It's kind of on the way to the other site where they found a ship but didn't find the gold. They stop in this other site. Um, it looks like they found another side wheel kind of on the sonar. And they go down. Um, this is in August of, of 1988. It's off the coast of South Carolina. The first ship they found was about 200 miles east of Cape Hatteras, the Outer Banks. Um, and they stop at this one place just to try the new equipment. You know, at the same time, give this one site a quick look over. And then we're going to make our way to, to the shipwreck we've already found. But quickly they realize that there is something there. And then they realize it is a side wheeler. And then they realize that this might be the Central America. The camera finds some shiny items. They go back and forth. They're trying to keep their excitement away from the crew. We actually have footage. Um, it's audio, audio for you guys of when they're actually looking at these cameras and they think they've found the side wheel and they think they've found the gold. But it was really so in 88 is when they for sure found it. Um, and so they, they first didn't bring up gold. First, what they brought up were things like they brought up the bell from the ship. Um, and that's one of the ways that they were able to do, because one thing you have to understand is it's, it's not as if this ship is laying on the floor of the ocean, a mile and a half down, um, still intact. It was, uh, a wooden ship. It had been disintegrated by all these worms and whatever else, um, would eat, um, the wood. And so the contents of the ship also had been scattered all around. So it wasn't like the Titanic where you see pictures of the Titanic and you see where, um, you know, they're, they're taking, um, a diver or a, 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 a robot, you know, through different parts of the ship. Right. But you know, that's not what you have here. This, you have a huge field of, um, strewn, um, belongings from many of the people that were on the ship and, uh, you know, obviously all this gold. Tommy and his crew have found the wreckage a mile and a half under the surface of the SS Central America, the ship of gold. It's an incredible finding. And as they stake their claim, they alert the media. And then people just love these stories, these treasure stories, um, not that anyone's really familiar with the SS Central America, but it takes the country by storm. People are just enthralled with this hidden treasure. America's, you know, treasure ship is found. We talked to, or we, we're going to play a clip for you, um, of Tommy just days after it. He's actually still on the boat. He's on a satellite phone, um, and he's describing what they found. I believe we found uh, what should prove to be the largest treasure trove in American history. How much is it's, there? Uh, What's the cash value, do you estimate? What's the cash value? We, uh, we uh, estimate that the value could uh, be up to about $400 million if we include both commercial shipments and uh, passenger gold. Well, There's a lot uh, yet that we don't uh, know and we hope to uh, recover over the next month. Well, first, Sam, we need to uh, bring up the gold that is uh, visible. 
It's in a very complex area of the wreck that we call the Fallen Timbers area. But you're Once not going we, to bring it up with human beings down there. You're going to bring it up with a machine, the Nemo, right? That's exactly right. Uh, Nemo is designed for uh, deep water archaeological work, and we've uh, designed it to handle a whole variety of tasks. What we will eventually have to do is dismantle this whole area that we call the Fallen Timbers area. Mr. Thompson, let me ask you, who owns that gold? I mean, you found it. Is it Finders Keepers? Well, not exactly. Uh, I've been appointed the substitute custodian for the U.S. Uh, Marshal Service and been given the responsibility to deliver it to the Federal District Court of Virginia. Uh, there, in what they call the trial of merits, the judge will decide uh, who should have the right to the gold. There could be other claimants. You mean like people who, uh, whose ancestors were on that ship or, or the insurance companies? Uh, exactly. Now, you're going to get something, though, and probably the lion's share. What will you do? Very quickly, Tommy, what will you do with your share of this money? Well, uh, we're going to bring it up first. There's a, it's uh, going to be a very difficult uh, chore, and after we get that done, then we're going to decide what to do next. do bring it up. They bring the gold up, tons of it, and they bring it back to shore in 1988. There's a huge party there. Um, right there on the shore when they land, there's, like Kathy said the, to me, there's Brinks trucks lined up, men with machine guns, but there's also the investors and their families and Tommy and all the crew's families, they're all there. Tommy's, you know, maritime lawyers who had protected, you know, these sites that he was searching over. And it's such a triumphant moment. Speeches are given. Congratulations. The money's hauled off in these Brinks trucks. Three tons of gold. The investors are, are thrilled. But that would be probably the best day of Tommy Thompson's life. Because from that moment on, everything goes downhill. It's crazy that you can find what would be hundreds of million dollars of gold and it would all turn your life upside down. But that's what happens to Tommy Thompson. Almost as soon as he lands, he's sued by 39 different insurance companies that claim to have paid out to the people who, who died to the gold that was lost on that ship. Multiple other lawsuits start pouring in. Um, Tommy begins paying off lawyers. He can't sell the gold until then. We talked to Kathy about how the famous treasure hunter becomes a criminal, this process, and how the gold for Tommy becomes a curse. They have a Brinks truck waiting for them to put the gold in. And um, then they began to run in, and they had a big party because yeah, you love, know, a I lot love. of the investors were there. That's kind of how the um, Gary Kinder book ends. Yeah, it ends the, so it, everybody part. thinks, oh, wow, this is wonderful. And, you know, <laughs> our, you know, and especially those investors, they thought, wow, you know, so we're going to get some money back. What a know? happy ending. Yeah. But... But so they, they began to um, go out. Now, also remember that you can only go and search in the ocean certain times of the year. So they could only go out. There was a period of time between, like, I think May and sometimes November, maybe. Yeah, October. That, that was yeah. kind of stretching it. But um, so, so they couldn't look all year. And um, I think they figured that 
every year that they went out, I think it was a, a million dollars that it cost them um, to go out and to retrieve things from the bottom of the ocean and bring them up, um, you know, and, and come back and forth a little bit. So, so that went on from 88 until 91. And, um, of course, because they were finding all these different things, people came out of the woodwork to claim that much of it belonged to them. Now, the large group that came out of the woodwork were the insurance companies right. that had insured the gold originally and had paid out uh, money. And a group of them sued, uh, claiming that 100% of what, what had been found belonged to them. I mean, those insurance companies sue Tommy and the, you know, the Columbus America Discovery Group. I mean, they're sued almost as soon as they land, you know, on shore in Norfolk and put that money in the Brinks truck. Well, well, actually, I mean, and there's others that sued too. Um, you know, there were there were people that claimed that they um, had been a part of figuring out how Tommy could find the ship. There were people that claimed that they. Um, had uh, helped him figure out how Nemo should work. Um, so, so there were a lot of different claims. Um, now, you know, a lot of them got dismissed, but, but as is any kind of legal action, anybody can file a lawsuit. And so uh, much of those went on and on and on. Some of them were dismissed pretty quickly, but this but, issue with the insurance companies went on for many years because yeah. it, was, it was appealed a number of times. And so while there were plans from 91 on to continue to go out and um, bring up more gold, um, those did not materialize. So, so by 91, they had brought up about three tons of gold, uh, which is a lot of gold. And the estimate of how much that gold was worth, the, the figure that you see the most at that time in news stories um, what Tommy was saying was perhaps it was worth $400 million. And they bring up more and more gold. Gold bars, gold flakes, gold coins by the just handful. We talked to Kathy about, you know, they t put these things on display um, and how Tommy brings this gold back, even though it would take nearly 10 years for the, for the gold to be able to be sold, the insurance claims to be solved by the courts. We talk about just those early years after the findings and how people are still, still obsessed with Tommy Thompson and the SS Central America and all that California gold rush gold he found on the floor of the Atlantic. So he went from being a guy that would talk to the media and um, would make presentations about the gold. They brought, they did bring like some of the some of the bars of gold back to Columbus, and it was displayed um, at Cosi, I believe there was a display, and then I think some of it was displayed during the Ameriflora um, and some of the artifacts that they had found. I love Ameriflora. Yeah, way to way to reference Ameriflora. <laughs> Way to get it yeah, into the that's show. That's another good good one you ought to do. That would be a great episode. We'll have you back that for that one. That would be a one. good one. So, um, so it, it wasn't as if he was shy. and um, But with all the legal things that started to go on, he began to get more and more and more secretive. So you're talking about from 88, when they found first found some of the gold, um, to 98, when the lawsuit is pretty much over. 
So then in 2000, um, Tommy sells the gold. Um, but all of it was under a great cloak of secrecy, shall we say. And he reportedly sold it for $52 million. Yeah. Now, that figure only came out in recent years because he would never talk about how much money he had gotten for the gold. Um, and he, he wouldn't tell his investors. He wouldn't tell other people that were part of the company. Uh, he kept all this very close um, to himself. Um, so, so the investors got irritated. Um, and so some of the investors decided that they should have an accounting of the money. And after, it, after the gold was sold, they felt like, well, you know, now we should get some kind of accounting and we should maybe get some of our money back. Um, and because remember, at the beginning, they were talking about $400 million worth of gold. Um, and then, so this one group or, or most of the gold was sold for $52 million. And the questions were, you know, was there more gold that Tommy had hidden? Um, was there... Um, you know, gold that other people had had received that wasn't part of the the record. So who knows? Um, so the some of the investors started to get very um, worried about their money, and the Columbus Dispatch was one of those investors. Um, and with a couple of other investors, they decided that they would push Tommy to, um, to reorganize his company. Yeah. Tommy sells the gold. But the company is still in incredible legal hot water. His investors want paid. He's paying lawyers. He moves to Florida. And he becomes more and more secretive. And to be honest with you, almost like you'd see in Goodfellas with Henry Hill or the movie Blow when everything goes wrong for him, he becomes paranoid. And he starts doing crazy things. Um, things that don't seem crazy to him. We talked to Kathy about Tommy Thompson in the 21st century after the gold was sold um, when the world just keeps crushing down on him. What did he do with the money? What is he doing during these years? He's not a fugitive at this time. He's just you know a defendant in dozens of lawsuits over his incredible finding. We talked to Kathy. She was a dispatch reporter covering this story. Um, she talked to people in Florida. She talked to his you know, his handyman, his landlord, um, even talked to his mother's neighbors down in Florida to try and figure out the story of when Tommy starts getting paranoid and when things start getting weird. Because there, were, there was another lawsuit, a group of um, people who had worked on the ship claimed that they all had been promised a percentage of the proceeds of the gold. And so after the gold was sold, they didn't receive anything. Um, they were paid. I mean, they had been paid wages, but they also said um, this group of people had said that they had also been promised a portion of the value of the gold and they had never received it. And so so you had that lawsuit. Then you've got the investors lawsuit. Um, and so so you got at least two different lawsuits and then you've still got some lawsuits in, in um, other states that were going on. Um, so there were a number of lawsuits that Tommy was involved with. And, and Tommy at this time kind of disappears. He um, moves to Florida and um, eventually his assistant, whose name is Allison Antikyer, 
um, moves down to Florida with him. When I started covering this in federal court was 2009, and I did try to find out where he was. And there were rumors that he was living with his mother, who was still alive and was living in Florida, and that he was taking care of her. In fact, I called down there um, because I was able to track where his mother lived. And I called, and I called, and I, I asked some of the neighbors, and the response that I got was, we are not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Did you call, or did you go down there? Or you just No, just I didn't go down. I called. Just to um, see if it'd be worth going down yeah, there, yeah. Yeah. Those of us who knew Tommy personally knew that the man lived like a pauper, that he sacrificed himself and was the first explorer to achieve a, a working presence in the deep oceans. Over $43 million in debt to one company, four or five million dollars in debt to another company. So apparently he and Allison, his now girlfriend, formerly his assistant, um, and she's also from Columbus, um, were living in a mansion. And there's a lot of different stories about <laughs> the mansion, but um, some of the most interesting stories are that this, this was a mansion that they were paying a couple thousand dollars a month to live in. And they would pay um, the rent in um, $100 bills, and they were musty and moldy smelling $100 bills. Yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of yeah. the story. And apparently they... Um, so, so this is when Tommy began to get not only secretive, but paranoid, I would say. Um, apparently he was hiding this money in pipes um, that he would stuff with money, and then he would bury them. And the reason they know that is because when um, investigators did go to try to find him, um, they found some of these pipes, and they found money wrappers um, in this... Um, mansion where he had been staying and there were lots of stories apparently down there he you know people knew they didn't know maybe who he was but he didn't live secretively I mean he'd go out to restaurants and and the guy that he rented from apparently knew who he was and um, but of course at that time he wasn't a fugitive the investors do sue Tommy they were never paid back millions and millions of dollars Think about how happy they were that day on the dock when he brought, you know, three tons of gold up off the ocean floor. But they never saw a dime. And these are powerful people. These are not people that are not going to take you to court over it. And Tommy, um, his lawyers keep making excuses, but eventually Tommy is called into court to talk about 500 gold coins. We talked to Kathy about those gold coins we talk about the day Tommy Thompson becomes a fugitive from law when he decides not to show up to court here in Columbus. Now for local news, a treasure hunter who, was, uh, who had once lived near Vero Beach is now wanted by the FBI. Digital billboards are going up in Ohio and here in Florida to publicize the face of Tommy Thompson. A federal judge ordered his arrest last year after he failed to appear in court in Columbus, Ohio. 
In the 1980s, Thompson's crew found gold bars and coins from a ship that sank in 1857. He's wanted for failing to appear in court in one of the lengthy legal fights that followed that discovery. They would use burner phones. Um, and they, so, so I think they found maybe 10, 15 different cell phones when the... Um, when investigators finally went into this mansion. And so Tommy had one phone that he would use if his kids were to call him. And he would use it, talk to them, and then, well, they would leave a message, he would call them back, and then he would turn the phone off. So the phones were never on, so because he was afraid of being tracked, apparently. This was even before he was a fugitive. Um, so he also... Um, wouldn't use any kind of air conditioning in this mansion. He covered up all the furniture or moved anything that was um, carpet or upholstered furniture into the garage because apparently he was he had some kind of phobia about fibers, particularly fibers from carpet. So um, you know we're we're talking about Florida here, where um, you know if you don't keep a house properly. Um, cooled, then mold grows. And so when they when they actually went in there, there was a lot of mold growing um, because he, he had had these phobias, apparently. After he and um, Allison were declared fugitives, um, one of the, um, one, a guy that did um, work at this mansion, he was a handyman. He went into the mansion uh, to do some work, realized that they were gone, and um, he looked them up online and found a dispatch, Columbus Dispatch story about Tommy Thompson and realized, saw a picture of him and realized that that's who that was, that that's who had been living in this mansion. So he contacted the U.S. Marshals and that's how they found out where Tommy had been living. And so um, I interviewed him, this handyman, and one of the stories that he told me was that one time when he came, um, and it was very hard to get into the mansion when Tommy was living there because he didn't want to let anybody in, Right. but he said that one time he came to do some work and Tommy came to the door, came outside, and all he had on was his underwear. <laughs> and so, you know, there were just kind of these weird stories about him, and, and they said, you know, he looked kind of... Um, kind of wild looking his hair was kind of wild looking i think he had a beard at that point and so um disheveled is yes i would describe yes. him yeah and you know i mean this is a very intelligent man so now he's what like in his 50s late 50s at that point he would have been um and you know and so then they go into the mansion and they find all these um these pipes that apparently they'd kept their money in and That's they found the, a, the money's all moldy. Yeah. And they found a book called how to be invisible that apparently they were using. They found all kinds of court documents. So it wasn't a question of Tommy not knowing that he was supposed to be in court. Um, he obviously knew because he had lots of these court documents and he had copies of stories that had been written about him. Um, but so, so the two of them vanish and Tommy's on the run. This is 2012, 2013, 2014. They can't find him. The U.S. Marshals are looking and they're closing in. Um, apparently, they used a lot of disguises. Um, and um, they had cash, all this cash with them that they were using. 
Um, and they eventually found them. Um, they were holed up at a Hilton Inn um, in southern Florida again. And um, the way that they found them was that they were able to track some, some medication that they believed that Tommy was using. And, uh, of course, Tommy was using an alias, and um, Allison was using an alias. It was like it, they were using it, like, as a safe house, or, mm-hmm. you know, to store their, their documents. And so in there, they found documents that indicated that they'd had all these storage lockers various places, so then they were able to um, look in the storage lockers. And um, this is how, from information there, they were able to track... They're closing in. Yes these drugs and so that was in the summer of 2014 and then um they alerted the marshals down in florida and they started you know looking for them and then finally they were able to um catch up with allison at a pharmacy when she was picking up some drugs um some prescription drugs and they followed her back to the hilton and um, she went into their hotel room and then the marshals knocked on the door and they arrested him. U.S. Marshals found Tommy Thompson and his reported girlfriend, Allison Antikire, hiding out at their suite in this Hilton Hotel in West Boca Raton. They did not resist arrest. Brian Baptist yeah. is a senior investigator for the U.S. Marshals. I'd heard that they had been staying at the hotel for two years. They had been paying cash for all their stay and all, everything, basically. Tommy's busted. They find Allison. They follow her back to the hotel. The guy's staying in a Hilton in Boca Raton. He's been there for a while, paying straight cash. I'd love to hear some stories about those couple of years. Um, all those years in Florida just sound crazy. They'd be great for this Tommy Thompson movie I think should be made. But Tommy is finally extradited back to Ohio. We talked to Kathy. She's covering this story you know, on a basically a weekly basis for the dispatch at this point. Um, and we talked to Tommy and Allison make a plea deal, a plea deal that Tommy is still in jail, even though he hasn't served a day of that deal. Um, in his plea agreement, he said it, it, it said, and he signed it that he would cooperate with the investors to help them find the, this, remember these 500 gold coins. Now, um, when they asked him about it in court, he said he gave them all these different stories about where these where these 500 coins might be. Uh, one of the stories was that they were in Belize in a trust. But then w- when they would discuss it with him, he'd tell them it was in one trust and he'd say it was in another trust. And um, at one point, um, Allison had told them that she had given the 500 coins to somebody that had come and picked them up. Yeah, like a courier. Down in Florida, yeah. yes. And then they had been taken someplace else, and but she didn't know who the, the courier was and where they were taken. So apparently only Tommy knows this. And Tommy refuses to tell the court and um, then the investors um where the money is he says he doesn't remember he doesn't know the name he doesn't you know so 
This has been going on since um, 2015. So he's still in jail today. He's in jail. He he was um, he reached a plea agreement where he would spend two years in prison um, for his criminal contempt, and then but as a part of his plea agreement, he had to talk about where these coins were. Well, he's never done that, and so the judge, the federal judge, ordered him um, incarcerated. Um, Under a new contempt charge, yes, basically, and, right? And, and this is not part of his prison sentence. So this is, um, so he is incarcerated until he actually will talk about the coins and where they are. Just last week, Kathy Gray had emailed me and she said, "You know, there's a hearing on Thursday for Tommy. You should go check it out." Um, I went down to the federal courthouse and I brought my pad of paper just to write some notes. And unfortunately, when I got there in Judge Marbley's courtroom, the day before the trial was actually, or the hearing, I should say, his his lawyers are going to try and argue that he's been held too long in contempt and that he should either be let out of jail or be allowed to serve his two-year sentence. Um, as again, Tommy just can't remember where that gold is. The old I don't remember defense. It's one of the great ones we have in the American legal system. But unfortunately, the trial had been, or the hearing had been continued. Uh, and it's set for August 18th. Although this episode's going to come out before that hearing, uh, we'll keep you up to date on it because we're going to be there on August 18th. I've become enthralled with this story. I want to know how it ends. I can pretty sure say that this will be the only podcast we do where we don't have a definitive, complete ending. I don't know how it's going to end. Is it possible that Judge Marbley, he could keep Tommy Thompson in jail, I think, under the law, under this, you know, contempt uh, statute, I think he could keep them in there technically forever. His lawyers are going to argue differently, um, but I just want to know where is that gold? Tommy Thompson, he does know. He's not going to tell anybody, but I, I just want to know what his plan is. Um, and I guess we'll find out. So stay tuned on that. You know, the ship is still being the SS Central America. And it's gold contents. Um, his company was put in receivership. And the investors are now hoping to get paid back um, as they go find more gold you know, in that shipwreck of the Central America. They started looking back in 2014, and they have found quite a bit more gold. Uh, and again, they keep bringing it to the surface. We asked Kathy, you know, since we're drinking the payback Pilsner here today from Four String Brewing, if she thought... You know, how is this going to end? Will these investors ever get paid back? And what's going to happen and what will become of Columbus's treasure hunter, Tommy Thompson? And so this company um, was able to determine where the shipwreck was based on all of Tommy's records. And so they went back in 2014 and they did find more gold. Now, the value of that gold... Um, I don't believe has ever been revealed, but they did find many gold bars and, um, you know, millions of dollars worth of gold and right. silver and other things. So do you think these investors dispatch and all these hundreds of other investors here in Central do you think they'll ever be paid back? Maybe not in full, but um, I, mean, then gotta, I don't think they'll ever be paid back. There's somebody, you know, I mean, Tommy's never going to talk to anybody. Allison, but. yeah. I don't know that Allison would talk. I've tried to talk to um, the one investor, Gil Kirk, who was very close to Tommy. 
um, and he would never speak with me. I've tried to talk to Tommy's ex-wife, who still was extremely, um, you know, when he was in court, came to some of his court hearings and was extremely supportive of him and believed in him. And, and that's another thing. I mean, people believed in him and still believe him in him. You know, they still believe that he was brilliant, and he was. Um, but took a lot of long, wrong turns at some point. Yeah. And um, every 60 days, he comes back before the court um, and says he doesn't know where that money is, where, that, where the 500 coins mm. are. I mean, I just feel like he's going to get out at some point and he's just going to go, he's going to go dig that money up. And I mean, I don't know. It's Well, there certainly are people that believe that he's buried it somewhere. Yeah. Um, since he was so peculiar about the way that he had kept his money before. And, you know, what, when they found him, they found almost a half a million dollars with him in his hotel room. You know, it's such a tangled web at this point. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today is an awesome book. I read it on the beach down in Cabo while on vacation. Um, it's a book called Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea. It's by Gary Kinder from 1998 Gary was actually on board uh, Tommy's ship the Arctic Discoverer when they found the gold when they found the SS Central America in 1988 he covers that entire story an incredible retelling of the of the sinking of the California gold rush and of course you know those days weeks and months and years that Tommy developed his deep ocean discovery technology how he finds the gold. The entire story is all in there. Uh, again, in Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea. Gary Kinder, go check it out. It reads like a science, you know, almost like science fiction half the time. Um, but it is a really cool book. So grab that. Um, also, you know, we've got our Nightlight 614 volunteer opportunity. And just come to the event. We're going to watch The Sandlot, which is apropos. It's our next and penultimate episode Episode 14 will be Ohio versus baseball. Um, so check that out. That should be coming out here in just a couple of weeks. But come come see us at the Nightlight 614 event. Again, it's Thursday, August 24th. If you want to volunteer, email me, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. On the Facebook page, if you don't follow us, like us already. We'll put up those t-shirts. They look really cool. Thanks to our friends Rob at Mysterioso Rock Art. You should also check them out. They have some incredible t-shirts. Um, and they're giving us a great deal on those. Rob developed our, our logo. I love our logo. So the logo will be on the shirt. It says Ohio V the World Podcast. Check it out. Um, and if you want one of those shirts, we will also be putting those up for you to order. 
and they're just 20 bucks so again if you want a shirt or if you want to volunteer email me at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com and go to nightlight614.com to buy your tickets for Thursday August 24th so that'll do it for today uh, again you know sorry we don't have a complete clean ending on Tommy Thompson uh, we'll keep following that and we'll, and we'll let you know follow the Facebook and the and the Instagram and our website ohiovtheworldpodcast.com to find out how that story is going to end uh, we appreciate you joining us for episode 13 Ohio versus Gold like I said we've got two episodes left uh, we've got an awesome guest for our last episode a good friend of ours a local celeb um, and we've got a number of guests for our Ohio versus baseball episode we're going to be talking about a, a number of different stories 15 minute stories uh, and we're going to go be going way back in baseball history in Ohio's uh, some of the most historic moments in Ohio baseball history. Um, we won't be talking about Jose Mesa or the 1997 Indians blowing Game 7 against the Florida Marlins, but we'll be going way further back than that. So check that out. Again, that's the next episode. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening so much. So rate and review the show. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, if you have show ideas, send us that. Again, only two shows left. We're going to take a little break. We'll start season two again later this fall. We have some great show ideas and guests. We're already lining up for that. And if you've got any idea where Tommy hid all this money and all the gold, you can also, again, email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. So thank you guys so much for listening. This has been episode 13, Ohio versus Gold. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.